Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. The 2022 Atlantic hurricane season has been relatively quiet so far, despite experts predicting an above-average season following an active 2021. The Legislative Gazette's Jim Lavoulis spoke with Brian Tang, an associate professor in the Department of Atmospheric and Environmental Sciences at the University of Albany, about what could be on the horizon. Well, we've had a, three tropical storms so far, which is running a little bit behind the pace of last year. Uh, and July, in particular, has been quite quiet, but we have to remember that hurricane season runs from June to November, and typically August, September, and October are our busiest months, so we have a long way to go. So what are the conditions that are existing that's making it a, a relatively quiet season so far? We've had a lot of dry, sinking air over much of the tropical Atlantic where hurricanes typically form around this time of year, and that prevents uh, thunderstorm clusters from growing and organizing uh, into hurricanes. And what about that changes typically in the time period that we're heading into that you say leads to the busier time of the season? So usually that dry air starts to go away. The atmosphere begins to moisten. Uh, instead of sinking air, we have more rising air, and that helps these thunderstorm clusters grow and then organize into hurricanes. And you mentioned, you know, the, the dry conditions in the, in the tropical areas, but in the northeast, we're seeing uh, some, some drought conditions as well as Obviously, Albany also hit a record 99 degrees on August 4th. What do those hotter-than-average summer temperatures, these drought conditions, tell us about the climate? So the, in, in terms of the, the summer weather, it certainly has been hot and dry. Um, when we look at what's happening globally, when, when we talk about climate change, we always have to take a global perspective there certainly have been a number of really high-impact heat waves occurring across the world, um, including the ones that we've been experiencing in the Northeast. And um, that is the signal of climate change. We know that climate change will cause an increase in heat waves. We have high confidence as a scientific community that has happened and will continue uh, to happen in the future. And now I under, understand you're also leading a $2 million project through the Office of Naval Research regarding the forecasting of hurricanes. Can you explain what that will involve? Yes. Yeah, so that project involves understanding um, situations in which hurricanes rapidly intensify. So a situation when a hurricane strengthens very quickly over a day or so. This is typically quite dangerous because it can escalate their danger. For example, um, if we have a hurricane near land um, and say it's a Category 1 storm and it's not predicted to rapidly intensify, but it does overnight, then suddenly everyone's waking up to a, a Category 3 or even a Category 4 storm. And that requires a, a vastly different um, 
preparation strategy and an evacuation strategy. So we want to understand um, what causes these storms to rapidly intensify. Um, are there hints that a hurricane gives us that lets us know it's about to rapidly intensify? That's very interesting. And then you've also been selected to co-lead a National Science Foundation study on what's called down shear reformation, if I'm calling that correctly? Yes, that's correct. And what will that entail? So down shear reformation is when a new hurricane center forms on one side of a hurricane where the thunderstorms are more concentrated. You can think of it like a second birth of a storm when a hurricane is in its early stages of its development. And when the center jumps like that, it can result in shifts in the hurricane's future track and also its intensity. So um, we don't fully understand why this occurs. Not all storms do this. So we want to um, analyze observations collected in past storms that did undergo downshare reformation and also run really high-resolution computer simulations to understand the physics of why this occurs. That's Brian Tang, Associate Professor in the Department of Atmospheric and Environmental Sciences at the University of Albany, speaking with the Legislative Gazette's Jim Lavoulis. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustino. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartalk. Alan, you have talked about this concept for a long time, since I've known you certainly, when it comes to politics and the idea that built into the system of politics is, well, something that's somewhat, could argue, undemocratic, and that's the IPP, the Incumbent Protection Plan. Well, David, incumbents always have an advantage. The way in which they obey the law, which is supposed to control their actions, the idea that they have information that a lot of other people don't have, gives people who hold office an advantage. And that's why I named it the IPP, or the Incumbent Protection Plan. It is something that we know people who hold offices are always looking to, to see how they can game the system. You know, there are those who don't do that, but there are those who do. And anybody who is listening right now knows that somebody can game the system to their own advantage. Quite often they will do that. Is it also one of the reasons people argue for term limits? Well, yes, there are real reasons to argue for term limits. The longer you're there, the more you know how to game the system. The longer you're there, the, the, the more you know how to play it. And if you're not there because it, you're forbidden from being there, it has to help the fluidity of the transference of power. And that's why we do it. We say there are times to limit the exercise of power. Otherwise, somebody will continue to run a system that should be fair and open. Yeah, well, and as you've also talked about for years and years, the gerrymander is one way that the political system gets upended. It's not democratic at all. And we see, for example, the Democrats in New York and what happened this year with redistricting fellow Democrats pitted against one another, like Gerald Nadler and Carolyn Maloney. The newest poll finds them neck and neck, Allen, in this race. But redistricting and the anti-democratic path that it engenders. 
Well, ironically, it is the very fact that every 10 years you've got to do this redistricting that has led to this conundrum. You have, for example, as you just named, two extremely popular people, Carolyn Maloney, who I know quite well and who I once worked with for Senator Orenstein, and of course, Nadler, who was a popular figure on the west side of Manhattan. So these two now have to face each other because every 10 years you got to come up with some kind of a plan for who's going to be sitting where. And if I have to handicap the game, I would find it very difficult because here you have a very popular woman on the east side. You have Nadler, who's been around forever on the west side of Manhattan. And this is going to be gunfight at OK Corral. Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartalk. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. This winter, thousands of athletes and visitors from around the world will be in the Adirondacks for the upcoming World University Games. New York Governor Kathy Hochul was recently in Lake Placid to mark a few milestones ahead of those games. And reporting for the Legislative Gazette, North Country Public Radio's Emily Russell reports that there are still some key details in the works. Every two years, some of the best college athletes from around the globe compete in the World University Games. They've been held in Russia and Italy and Spain. And this winter, they're coming to Lake Placid in the North Country. Hosting two Winter Olympics has earned Lake Placid the reputation as the winter sports capital of the world. This town is not willing to simply sit back and have an Olympic pass. That was from a promo video for the upcoming games. Lake Placid wants to have an Olympic future, too, or at least a future hosting big international sporting events. To prepare for the World University Games and attract other events, New York State has invested more than $400 million to upgrade Olympic facilities in the area. Governor Kathy Hochul was at one of those facilities recently, the Mount Van Hovenberg Sports Complex. I sure feel good vibrations today, do we not? This is a... An extraordinary milestone. Hochul was there with a few announcements about the games, which will feature more than 80 competitions for sports like speed skating, hockey, and curling. We've come to an agreement with ESPN to broadcast the games. Come in first if you can, but this is going to be a massive, massive platform to showcase the talent of these athletes all over. So uh, I can't wait for that to be happening. But also one more thing that's important. What do the medals look like? We get to design them as the host. The medals have an angular shape to them, a modern feel with a North Country touch. And the center of each medal is a recycled piece of glass from Potsdam. Folks at the New York State College of Ceramics at Alfred University helped develop the medals. And they also feature the work of Sidekick Collective. It's a Glens Falls-based graphic design company. Every graphic designer's dream is to work on some sort of sporting event that has the scope and scale that this does, and the piece de resistance is the metal design. That's Will Fowler. He's the co-owner of Sidekick Collective, speaking in another promotional video for the games. We created something that feels like a chunk of ice, and it's very angular. It almost, from a profile, looks like a mountain ridgeline as well, so... 
The medals have been unveiled, the schedule is set, but there are still some big hurdles ahead. Maybe the biggest is housing. There are a few apartment complexes in the works that will add hundreds of units to the housing stock in Lake Placid. But first, they'll be used by athletes and coaches during the games. Meanwhile, workers have already started moving to the area, some posting online saying they've been struggling to find a place to live. Governor Hochul addressed the housing shortage after the event in Lake Placid. So that's what we have to do. We have to keep building. Uh, I'm not stopping until we address the need, something I've heard about for many years, that it's very expensive to live here. We have to have affordable workforce housing available, so those investments are underway as we speak. Hochul secured $25 billion for affordable housing in this year's budget. It's an investment that's part of the state's five-year plan. But folks have been struggling for years to find long-term affordable housing in the Lake Placid area. Many blame short-term rentals for the crisis. Lake Placid is in the midst of a moratorium on new STRs, while the village considers additional regulations. Asked about the issue in Lake Placid, Hochul said there needs to be a balance between long-term affordable housing and places for visitors to stay. We're not at full capacity yet, but we will be uh, as people continue to discover the beauty and the charm of the North Country. So it's something that we talk about and working with the legislature to find the right balance. But right now we do need to continue making sure that there's availability of hotel rooms, uh, lodges, as well as uh, short-term rentals. The moratorium on new short-term rentals in Lake Placid is set to expire at the end of September. Organizers of the World University Games in Lake Placid say they'll be ready to host athletes and visitors this winter. The games are scheduled for mid-January. I'm Emily Russell. Soul food is a cuisine of the American South. It's become popular all over the country as African-American people migrated from the South to other parts of the U.S., and that includes New York's Southern Tier, Reporting for the Legislative Gazette, WSKG's Sarah Gager has this story of two families making their own legacies from recipes passed down over generations. Hot oil crackles as the Sunday cook drops a piece of breaded chicken into a deep cast iron pot on the stove. The outlet bar and lounge opened in Endicott just over six months ago. Tina Archie says the recipes go back much further than that. Just the way that we've seen people cook all of our lives. It's not even written. It's just what you know to do. Archie is part owner. She says she's happy to serve a diverse crowd, but there needs to be a place black people can identify with and call their own. She remembers gathering for Sunday dinners prepared by her mother and grandmother. You know, when you're young, all you got to do is pull up and sit down and eat. But now, you got to prepare it, dish it up. And get everyone to the table. Archie says she feels guilt that she can't do it like her mom did. She admits times are different and values have changed, but family dinners should be preserved. We got to try to keep it alive. Like I'm hoping that I'm going to instill this in my children and then they will instill it in theirs, I'm hoping. Archie co-owns the outlet with her daughter, Rocky Brown. They don't always see eye to eye on business decisions, like how to promote the restaurant on social media. Brown says working with her mom can be stressful at times, but it's inspiring too. Because she taught me just how, not how easy it is because it was hard work, but it's not out of our reach as young black people to open up our own establishment. Brown describes the outlet as fresh. I want it to be just a refreshing environment, refreshing, young. Soul food has history in resourcefulness and ingenuity. Adrian Miller is a soul food scholar. Dropping knowledge like hot biscuits. 
Miller says soul food is an immigrant cuisine which draws influence from West Africa, Europe, and the Americas. When immigrants go from one place to another, they try to get to the new place and recreate home. And food is often an important way to recreate home. According to Miller, one of the first references to fried chicken in the U.S. was in the diary of Virginia Governor William Byrd from the 1700s. Byrd was an enslaver. Enslaved Africans and later enslaved African Americans were able to figure out a way to survive and create something beautiful that people around the world love. Miller says soul food continues to change as black people from the American South settle in other parts of the U.S. Theo and Barbara Felton moved to the southern tier from South Georgia and opened Theo's Southern-style cuisine in the 1990s. They had soul food and also Creole dishes. It was right next to the Arches on Main Street in Johnson City for 20 years. Their daughter, Linda Osborne, has fond memories of her parents' restaurant. When we were in church, all I'm sitting there thinking about is, oh, I can't wait till we can get back to Theo's and get a piece of fried chicken. So... <laughs> It's like the memory is like, so when even now on a Sunday, when I see fried chicken, I, I start thinking back to Theo's. She recalls you could smell the barbecue before you came in and cornbread once you were inside and that people would say it felt like home. So it was a really family oriented place because all the family worked there. Osborne says she wanted to preserve her family's recipes when Theo's closed. She has a line of sauces used at the restaurant that are now sold at Tom's in Binghamton and some stores in Rochester. The line includes the barbecue sauce made from her grandfather's recipe and the hot and sweet sauce her father called sweet and sassy. And Osborne is preparing to release a new herb honey vinaigrette, a recipe of her own. Osborne released a cookbook of family recipes dedicated to both her father and mother, Theo and Barbara. She says they taught her togetherness and unfailing love, and that, she says, is their most important legacy. In Vestal, I'm Sarah Gager. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. There are community gardens all across New York state. Shared plots of land for folks to grow their own food, connect with neighbors, and create something beautiful for the public to enjoy. Reporting for the Legislative Gazette, North Country Public Radio's Todd Moe found a group of gardeners in the Adirondack Village of Saranac Lake were making the most of their shared green space. Community gardens have played a major role in addressing the effects of the pandemic, serving as a space that not only provides fresh local veggies, but also as a source of social support and emotional well-being during this time of crisis. A few steps into the common ground garden in Saranac Lake, and I'm being hailed by one of the gardeners. Oh. That's Anne Monroe. She and her husband, John, are recently retired and new residents of the Adirondacks. They moved here from Mexico, New York, near Lake Ontario. It's a little bit colder here than Mexico and not as much snow. Anne is busy weeding and John wields a hoe as they clear their plot. They're first-timers in this spot, but long-time gardeners. We survived our first winter and this is great, so we're happy to be here. 
What did, and what have you put in so far? Spinach, lettuce, peas, planting some uh, beets, collards and kale and green beans and squash today. So why did you decide a community garden was an option versus maybe, I don't know, tilling some space? Do you... Our backyard is small, oh. shady, and deer go through every day. So nothing would grow there. <laughs> <laughs> so here you are. Yeah. yeah. And there's something also nice about the, the, the community aspect, yes, right? There is, yeah. yeah. Everybody's really helpful and work together. We have a few community work days, and um, the Presbyterian Church, they have a planting day and uh, weeding bees. So it's, it's really nice because, you know, you get advice from other people, and, and John's been a gardener for years, and so he can really help people are, that are just starting. Do you think you'll keep your garden going uh, into next year too? Do you? I mean, Mine you, too. Yeah. as long as yeah. we can. Yeah. <laughs> Agriculture is not the easiest thing to do or take on in the Adirondacks. It persists because uh, we all need food, right? Uh, we love plants. That's why we're here. My name is Emily Beldinen, and we are standing in the Saranac Lake Common Ground Gardens. Emily Bell Dynan is one of the organizers who agreed to help re-energize local interest in the Common Ground Garden, which now has followers on Instagram and Facebook. The garden is on land donated by the Adirondack Medical Center years ago as part of its Healthy Heart campaign. Gardeners include nurses, hospital staff, local church congregations, food pantry volunteers, and folks who just want more gardening space. Dinan gives me a tour of her garden plot. Flowers and pumpkins are her favorites. Sunflowers, beans, and pumpkins will work together in this row. Another row of more decorative sunflowers. In the back, I've got a row of decorative amaranth to all be going to cut flowers and bouquets. Emily tells me that she grew up in Queens and Brooklyn and has a background as a community organizer and specifically community gardens. Getting to find that here with my new community in Saranac Lake has been really fantastic. Getting to put my skills to work to kind of bolster efforts and get people connected and educated and have the tools they need. Signed up, even just having a new website and social media to let people know we're here, we're open for business, come on in. This is a really intergenerational space and there's a lot of different people coming from a lot of different places where they may not have met otherwise. And so there's a lot of authentic engagement of not just to know people's names and where they live, but why they moved here, what they like growing, why they like growing it, how they like growing it, even how they're tending their soil, why they're tending their soil that way. And so there's a lot of knowledge sharing, which you're not gonna get in other spaces. There's a lot of labor sharing, which you're not going to get in other spaces. And there's just, the best way to learn how to garden is by watching other people garden and just taking that information year by year by year. Like, the only way you can really learn is by participating. And it's also just a fantastic, unique, and positive way to get to know everybody who you live near, who you absolutely would not have met otherwise. And a lot of our culture doesn't have space like this. We used to have bowling alleys, and bowling teams, and now, you know, I think people are getting really, really back into gardening, especially after the pandemic. So I think it's wonderful to see so many different people together. You could have gardening teams. 
Yeah. Like weeding teams. You could have weeding teams. Yeah, weeding teams. Nodding in agreement are Gemma Fielder and her husband Nick, a chef and baker, ready to use fresh ingredients from the garden for their catering business. I went to Bosey's in high school and then said, yeah, this is what I want to do with my life. So it's the dream. You know? <laughs> Everyone has something entirely different to offer, whether it's how they grow one thing or how they compost or how they sow their seed. Like, there's so many different things to learn and different ways to do it. It's mind-blowing. Like, you just keep learning stuff. You never know everything. Gemma and Nick moved to Saranac Lake a couple of years ago. Gemma is from Vermont. Nick grew up in the Adirondacks. They both love the outdoors. They're tending more than one plot this summer, including beautiful stands of garlic, herbs, and peppers. Okay, Nick, where are you where are you standing? You're can I walk here? Yes, yeah. of course. So right now we're standing between our jalapeno plants. Um, we've got six rows of five. Um, and then behind you, we have some habanero peppers and some watermelons. Um, cool. I really started getting into growing pepper varieties this year. So I have several hot pepper varieties at home. And then these ones are ones we can produce pepper jelly or other things with. On Gemma's side. Gemma, I'm going to step over and let you. Absolutely. I would also like to add that. In growing all of these peppers and things, we're learning so much. So we grew all these. Everything in here pretty much is from seed, uh-huh. which is very new for us. We've been using seedlings before now. So we learned a lot about hardening off and making them okay to be outside. Because right. this was full, and now it is only half full. Because because you started these indoors, right? Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. bought a whole greenhouse. We have all the... We thought we had all the stuff, so... <laughs> It'll be an improvement for next year, that's for sure. Exactly. It's the way to, it's the way to learn. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah, yeah. So just about everything, well, everything you're growing here is probably going to end up in your that's baked goods. That's, yeah. that's the goal. Even the watermelon will find something to do with really? it. Really? Yeah. yeah. Don't ask that. what, though, but we'll get there. Yeah. They'll get there. <laughs> yeah, they'll get there. In the meantime, it's back to weeding, the biggest chore this summer. But there will be time to celebrate, too. Co-organizers Emily Beldinen and Gemma Fielder say, come autumn, look for signs announcing a harvest festival and pumpkin party. All part of this community garden's new role in improving access to fresh food and a communal space for socializing. I'm Todd Moe at the Common Ground Community Garden in Saranac Lake. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2233. Or just listen online at wamc.org or schedule a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And join us again next week at this same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustino.